And we're going to look at verses 27 to the end, particularly verse 28, where the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders come to Jesus and ask Him, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you authority to do this? Now, I think it is very, very important that we understand what we believe and why we believe it, and on what authority, and on what basis. I think in this country, in both government and church, this question is going to be more and more and more important. Who says, and who do we listen to? There's a a story told of a Scottish minister, and I have forgotten his name, and some of you who are brilliant church historians will tell me afterwards who was speaking to King James I and VI, uh, the first of Great Britain, the sixth of Scotland, the uh, man behind the King James Bible. And he was a very authoritarian man, and he believed that he as king was God's representative on earth, not only for the state, but also for the church. And he was speaking to one of his Scottish Presbyterian ministers who he didn't like. He preferred the bishop's system. It was more easily controllable. And uh, this minister said to him in a broad Fife accent, because he was a Fifer, there are two kingdoms in this country. One of which, I'll not do the whole accent, but ain of which, one of which you are the king, and the other of which you are but a silly vassal. Uh, King James didn't like him very much. Uh, We are in that position where more and more and more the state and others are claiming an authority which is way beyond their power to do so. And Christians don't have a right to go along with that claim by the state. And in some ways, we will have to challenge it. So, for example... uh, I think that the big issue over the coming months is going to be the whole question of redefining marriage. The state has no right to redefine marriage. Marriage is not given by the state. Marriage is something that is given by God. And whatever the state says, we will not go along with that. But people will ask you, but who gave you the right? Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you do what you do? And when you tell someone about Jesus... What right do you have to do so? Why not just leave people alone? Why not everyone have their own personal private beliefs? Who do you think you are? Well, in in this passage, Jesus is asked that question. It's an important question. It takes place in the temple courts in Jerusalem. If you can try and imagine the scene, temple was massive. There were two famous cloisters one on the east side and one on the south side of what they called the Court of the Gentiles, which was the big area that people would come into. Everyone was welcome to except uh, women. Women had to stay out of that. Then you had the Court of the Gentiles. Then you had the Court of the Jews. Then you went right into the priests and the high priest and so on. But this one was called Solomon's Porch, and that's where Jesus was. It had these big, massive columns Corinthian columns 35 feet high, had rows of white marble columns, each six feet in diameter, 162 of them. And the rabbis and the teachers liked to be seen walking amongst them. A lot of the ancient cities had them. If you go and visit any of the ancient 
Mediterranean cities. You can see them. They were there to shelter from the storm and the wind and the rain. And it was in these places that most of the teaching was done. Now, the nearest equivalent I can think of is if you go across to St. Andrews and you go to St. Salvatore's, which is opposite Martyr's Church, just walk in to St. Salvatore's because you're allowed to do that. And it's got these, this kind of very ancient-looking uh, university, you know, Oxford-Cambridge-type feel. And it was in these places that um, people would, would go and teach. For example, in some of the Greek ones, the Stoics, a man called Zeno, who's their founder, they walked in what they called the Stoia Poikila, which was a painted porch in Athens like this. Well, this was, the reason for saying all that is this was home ground for the priests. It was home ground for the teachers of the law. It was home ground for the elders. And these three groups together combined what was, or comprised what was called the Sanhedrin, 71 strong council. And they come and they see Jesus walking in the temple courts. But he's not supposed to be there. Who do you think you are? I was once in Edinburgh University as a student, and um, I went down to a a lecture theatre, and I was a wee bit early, and so I thought, I'll just go and stand at the front and see what it's like to do a lecture, which was really a bit of a nerve, because all the fourth-year students came in, and I was a first-year, and I was standing there, and and for a bit of a laugh, I thought, I'm just going to stand here and pretend I'm the lecturer. I mean, I was looked incredibly young and boyish. And then a guy came in, and the lecturer came in, he looked, who do you... And I disappeared out the other door. <laughs> Just. But that's the kind of thing. There's Jesus walking amongst the columns. He's not in the masses waiting to be instructed. He's walking amongst the columns. And he's teaching and he's, he's doing lots of different things. They say, wait a minute, who gave you the authority to do this? Now, the rest of the next chapter in Mark, Mark 12... Uh, and actually into Mark 13 as well. That's Jesus responding to that question. There are five stories that reflect on the question. The one about the vineyard, the one about taxes to Caesar, the one about marriage and the resurrection, the one about the greatest commandment, and the one whose son is the Christ. But these things that Jesus is doing, um, just before, if you go back in chapter 11 to verse 12 onwards, or verse 15 rather onwards, Jesus had driven out the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. This is where a lot of the religious establishment made their money out of religion. And the people who are in charge of the temple are saying, this is our turf. What are you doing here? We control this. Who gave you the right to come in here and challenge this? They're not questioning the challenge in the sense of whether it's right or wrong. They're just questioning the authority of Jesus. It's a bit like sometimes in our culture. If you challenge the establishment at all, you're basically told, be sweet. Just go back into your wee hidey hole. Be as religious as you want, but don't you dare. We are the authorities here. It's a question that's motivated by jealousy, and it's a question that's motivated by unbelief. It's also, by the way, a trick question. If he says, on my own authority I do it, then they'll say, you're a megalomaniac. And if he says, it's on God's authority, then they'll say, you're blaspheming. And again, it's very much the same task. People say, well, what gives you the right to say this? What gives you the right to think this? What gives you the right to preach this? 
Why do you want to communicate the gospel? If you say, well, it's my authority, they'll say, you're a nutcase. And if you say, well, God told me to, they'll say, you're a nutcase. It was a trick question. So that's why you then get an extremely wise response from Jesus. He replies, but he doesn't answer the question. He, in return, asks a question and then demands a response. Tell me, he says, I'll ask you one question, answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. But you tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. Now, they have a problem because they're asked a specific question, a direct question, and they have to respond. If they say, well, it came from John, and John's baptism was from God, he had the authority of God, then Jesus will say to them, okay, why don't you believe him? Because John testified about me. John baptized me. John said this about me. Why don't you believe him? This man had the authority from God. He taught you a message. Why don't you accept it? If they said, John was a chancer, John didn't speak from God, they would cause a riot because they're in the court of the Gentiles. Massive crowds are there because of the time of year. And the majority of people believed that John was a prophet. They believed that John was from God and John had been a martyr. So basically, Jesus was extremely clever and he had them. But he had them also because of an authority about the way he asked things. That tied in with the way he taught. If you go back in Mark's gospel, you'll find over and over again, especially at the beginning, that the common people heard Jesus gladly because he taught them with authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees. Now, to give you the kind of contrast, I listened to a a program yesterday with a man called Bart Ehrman, who uh, was talking away, and he was talking away with another scholar. The scholar was a Christian scholar. Ehrman is not a Christian at all. He's a a pretty militant atheist, claims to be a Bible scholar. And they had this discussion, and for me, I mean, I'm interested in this kind of stuff. It was so boring. It really was. I was just bored out my skull. I didn't even listen to the whole of it. And and it was on, on the one hand... This teacher says this, and on the other hand, this professor says this, and on the other hand, this book says this, and on the other hand, this scholar says this. Nobody's going to listen to that. And that's what it was like in this day. They were arguing about many different things, but Jesus came and he taught them with the quiet and sure and certain authority that this was the word of God. He's asking them whether they would recognize true authority at all. Were they just making it up? Were they just religious leaders who had no recognition of God? And he knew the answer. Some did recognize God and were seeking. Some, like Nicodemus, were really seeking and would eventually follow Christ. And some were just basically atheists in religious garb. There's a report came out this week from one of the Dutch churches that one in six of their ministers is now professing to be an atheist. Now, that's pretty difficult. If you're, I mean, you know, it's like a bus driver who can't drive. You know, a minister who doesn't believe in God and doesn't even pretend to believe in God. And there was an interview with this lady, this Dutch lady, who said, yeah, we like it because we can understand it's modern. And I'm going, I don't care if it's modern. It's got nothing. How can you, you know, I mean, give me an honest atheist any day. Don't give me an atheist in a dog collar 
calling people to worship and sing and then say, yeah, but we don't believe that there's a God. God is just a force of love, a projection of our imaginations and all that kind of stuff. Well, Jesus knew was what, what at the heart of this. He knew that like so much in religion was about control and power and show and politics. And he says, I want to get really to the heart of the matter. I want to find out whose authority you come under. And I doubt there is a more important question for the church in Scotland today or a more important question for you and I than this. Who is Lord? Who do we obey? Who do we serve? If these people could not or would not answer the answer, answer the question, they had no right to, to receive an answer. And I again think there's a really important question here, or a really important principle. You have a right to question Jesus. You absolutely have a right to question Jesus. But when you do so, realize how dangerous it is, because he will very often, in response, answer you with a question. And his questions will not be defensive. They will be revealing and mind-blowing questions. And you have to answer them, or you cannot expect him to answer you. So when you say, Lord, why did this happen? Or Lord, what do you want me to do? Or Lord, what does this mean? Or Lord, I don't get this. If you are absolutely serious, if you really want to engage with Jesus Christ, if you really want to follow Jesus Christ, you are not walking into a room and saying, you tell me. You are walking into a room and saying, Lord, I'd like to know. And you are opening yourself to Jesus so that he can ask you the most searching and the most revealing questions that perhaps you haven't even thought of yourself. What did they do? They gave him a really poor answer. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? If we say from men, they feared the people for everyone held that Jesus really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. It's a poor answer because it's dishonest. It's a lie. That's what happens when men will not face the truth. They have to twist and wriggle and in the end get themselves in a position where they have nothing to say. If we face the truth, it might be difficult. It might be embarrassing. But if we do not face the truth, we will get immersed more and more in a situation which renders us helpless and ineffective. Sometimes, but not always, there are people who are dishonest in their answers. Sometimes there are people who will say to me or say to others, I don't understand the Bible. I don't understand the gospel. Someone else will say, I try, but I get nowhere. I've tried to pray, but I get nowhere. Someone else will say, I've got no time. I've got no time. But I think in many cases, these are dishonest answers. Many times, and I mean many times, I either personally have come across or I've heard or read of people who've said, as they're going along in their Christian life, suddenly they turn around and they say, I've got my, these doubts, I've got these fears. They're intellectual doubts, they're intellectual fears. Now, there are people who have that genuinely. I've come across people who have that genuinely. But I've come across this just as much, if not more. Typical situation. A guy decides that he's in love with another man's wife, and he's a Christian. 
And he knows that as a Christian, he can't do anything about it. So what happens? He has to make a choice. And he makes a choice. And lo and behold, he begins to have doubts. And lo and behold, he just gradually begins to drift away from the church. And he stops reading the Bible. And he hardly prays. And he struggles. And he has doubts. And he, suddenly it all becomes intellectual. Oh, I can't believe in a God who did this. I can't believe... And it's all extremely convenient because as he loses his faith, he's able to get what he wants. It's just dishonest. It's really dishonest. Sometimes when people say, I can't, it means I won't. Far too many of us deal dishonestly with our own souls. Jesus put it beautifully, John 3.19. This is the verdict. Lights come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. I, uh, on the ubiquitous Facebook, uh, this afternoon I had a wee look at something, and there's a man who posts on it who's a Christian, I think, um, but really, uh, every post, really, I should, I'll have to defriend him or something. I've never defriended anybody, but it's... Um, Today, again, it was just, I found it really disturbing. He, he basically said, if we put up a notice outside our church saying, you're welcome in here, whether you're fat or thin, bold or hairy, male or female, rich or poor or whatever, then our churches would be full. If only we'd, we did that, then lots of people would come. And the answer is, of course, that should be true. You should be welcome in here, whatever shape, size, or lack, or amount of hair that you have. It's, you know, that's not the issue. It doesn't matter your race, your sexuality, gender, you know, all the age, social class, people are welcome. But you really think that if you put up a sign like that, and if it was actually even really true, that people would flock? No, why? Because of what Jesus says men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This is the verdict. Calvin puts it this way, they do not inquire what is true, nor do they put the question to their own conscience, and they are so base as to choose to rather to shuffle than to acknowledge what they know to be true, that their tyranny may not be impaired. In this manner, all wicked men, though they pretend to be desirous of learning, shut the gate of truth if they feel it to be opposed to their wicked desires. When the newspapers tell the church, You've got to come in touch with modern society and believe what we believe. That's bad enough. But when the church goes, yeah, that's right, we've got to do that. All that you're doing is distorting the truth to fit our own wicked desires. We have to look at what is true. We don't make it up. This morning I used a quote from Chesterton, and let me give it to you again, just a simple paraphrase of it, where G.K. Chesterton said the right way of, or uh, the, the kind of old way was to, to, to have a vision and to shape the society in accordance with that vision. To see something, to see the truth. And Chesterton said, if you were a communist, you had that vision. You wanted to radically change society. You know, if you were a Catholic or a Protestant or whatever, different religions, you had a vision. You went, and he was talking about the modern man, and he says, what happens is this, that you have society and you keep changing your vision in order to suit the society. And you know that we have vision statements and mission statements in church. And I wonder how many of them are just shaped to conform to the society rather than taking the simple vision 
that our aim is to glorify God. Our aim is to enjoy Him forever. Our aim is to obey and to serve and to love the living God who really is there. It was a poor answer. And by the way, it was an extremely poor answer because they knew what the truth was. They'd been told it. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We're told that the whole of Jerusalem went out to Jesus, went out to see John the Baptist. Many, many, many of these teachers of the law would have seen this, would have known this, would have experienced this, would have heard this. They would have tasted of the power of God. They would have seen and heard of the power of Jesus Christ. And yet still, the darkness in them was so great that they refuse to acknowledge the truth. John Lennon's wonderful song, Give me some truth. I'm sick and tired of hearing things. My neurotic, psychotic, pig-headed politicians. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. I like it when people say, I'm interested in truth and I want to find out truth. Whether they're atheist or whatever. Whether they're kind of moderately religious and so on. If that's true, if they really are looking for truth. But if you're not, if you're just looking for an excuse to justify your own behavior... If you're just looking for someone to to come along and say, yeah, you're fine, you're fine, you're okay. That's not truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. That's where the authority comes from. Neither will I tell you, he said, by what authority I am doing these things. I actually don't think it is right for Christians today to go into government and society and newspapers and so on and say, you should do this because the Bible says so. They don't accept the Bible. They don't accept the authority of Jesus. You're not going to get anywhere with that. Where it should be done without any question is in the church. Paul says in Corinthians, we shouldn't judge those outside the church, but we are most certainly to judge those inside. We claim to be the church of Jesus Christ. If Christ is not acknowledged as Lord in the Christian church, I think, personally, we're worse than unbelievers and we're we're better off away from it. It's It's why we have this just big emphasis in the church here on teaching God's Word. Why? Sometimes it will make you feel better. Sometimes it will make you feel great. Sometimes it will make you feel awful. Sometimes you might even be bored out of your skull. But we do it because that's our authority. That's our reason for believing. It's, it's in Christ we believe and we hear about Christ in his word. And it's Christ we obey and Christ speaks to us. Generally not through visions or voices in the sky or anything else. Christ speaks to us through his word. And so we come and we say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Okay, let me apply this. If that is the case, if the authority is from Jesus, what are some lessons we can learn from all of this? Number one is how difficult it is to be a leader. The scribes, Pharisees, and elders had become out of touch with their own people and with reality. There can be a solidifying effect, a freezing effect of holding office and preserving the past. 
But the authority that any leader has is a derived authority. In the end, it comes from the ultimate authority, God. The good thing about politicians, I'm not saying they have to be Christians, but the good thing about politicians, for example, who acknowledge that they are not the ultimate authority, is that they're going to be a lot more careful in their judgments. Any politician who has a Messiah complex is, we are, we are in great, great danger. But it is difficult to be a leader. So I ask you to pray for those in the church here and in other churches who are involved in leadership. I have no personal authority. I'm not scary, honestly. I, you know, the elders here have no personal authority. Any authority that we have is derived only from God's Word. So the second lesson there is don't depend too much on religious leaders, priests, pope, pastors, preachers, ministers. None of us are infallible, and all of us have to have our teachings measured against the one certain standard, the authority of God's Word. It's why it's completely bizarre when you get Christians who come into a church and they, they listen to things that are said, and then in about the fifth sermon or something, they realize that something was said that as far as they're concerned is not in the Bible. And they go, whoa, this is really, really wrong. It might be something relatively minor. And then they say, well, that's it. I have to get out of this church. I'm off. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the next church until the same thing happens. And then the same thing happens again. And you're going to end up by, like a man called John McLeod, who, no, nobody you know, um, from the 18th century, I believe, who was from a place called Assent up in Sutherland. And he was, um, fancied himself in terms of his godliness, and he wandered, uh, went on a tour around the whole of Britain, and he came back and he said to his friend, I've been looking to see if there's a sincere and real Christian in the whole of Britain, and I haven't found one. There's me and thee, and I have my doubts about thee. I bet there are people who are like that. I'm, I, my job is I teach God's Word, and here's, here's the real shocker. Sometimes I get it wrong. And you, that shouldn't shock you because you should be a biblical Christian who realizes that your trust is not in any one particular person. Now, that doesn't mean that each does what seems right in their, is in their own eyes. It doesn't mean that you don't respect the person who teaches God's Word, but it does mean that your faith is in God's Word, never in the preacher or teacher, because at some point the preacher or teacher will let you down. Third application is simply this face the truth. Face the truth. Look for truth. You don't know all the truth. The truth is out there. The truth is in God's Word, but we have to face it and to look at it. These men were completely unwilling to face up to the truth. Pilate was unwilling to face up to the truth. He fobbed it off. What is truth? He said, It is better to face the truth with Christ than to live a delusionary life. It is incredible, isn't it, that People talk about the God delusion, and yet that's not the case. There's a report come out this week, yet another one, but this one is about as comprehensive as it gets, which states unequivocally that children believe in God, that no matter their upbringing and their background, because they are predisposed to seeing design in things, so they, they, they see... Uh, uh, a car, and they think, well, someone's made the car, but they see a tree, they say someone's made. They see design and purpose in everything. Innately, children believe in God no matter what their background. And the re this report from uh, an academic down in England, it's very explicit. 
And the argument then becomes, what you've got to do is knock that out, get it out of them. And people are scared to face up to reality and face up to the truth. The delusion is to think that we can live life without God. Number four, everything we do, we should do for Jesus in his name. We pray in his name, in his authority. We proclaim his message in his name. We love and care for others in his name. We fight spiritual battles in his name. We're going to sing this in a moment, but uh, from many years ago, this song came into my head. Um, God forgave my sin in Jesus' name. I've been born again in Jesus' name. And in Jesus' name, I come to you to share his love as he told me to. He said, freely, freely you have received. Freely, freely give. Go in my name, and because you believe, others will know that I live. We don't communicate the gospel because the church tells us to. We don't communicate the gospel because we feel guilty. We don't communicate the gospel because we're afraid. We communicate the gospel because Jesus said, go. 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 Go tell them. Go tell them. Go tell them. We go with his authority. Fifthly, fight spiritual battles with the truth. You don't fight them in any other way. The truth of Jesus. Jesus won this battle, and he goes on to win others. He demonstrates his truth and the weakness of his opponents. It doesn't mean that we will convince people because of that, although at least one of the Pharisees we know was won over. In fact, it may mean even more fierce opposition. Jesus won the argument, and they crucified him. That may happen. We will win. No question, in terms of truth, that the gospel wins. But that doesn't necessarily mean full churches, no persecution, and everyone loves us. But we fight the spiritual battles with the truth. And that's all we've got. And again, that comes back to the situation in the churches. If you take away the truth, if you compromise the truth, if you water down the truth, what have you got left? You're taking away your sword. You're taking away what is absolutely needed and essential. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, when he was asked to retract them, particularly when he was asked to retract the teaching about justification by faith, you know his famous answer. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. In other words, he was saying to the absolute most powerful secular and church authorities, I'm convinced of this, this is God's word, Whatever you do to me, I can't do anything else. I honestly think that we've become so spineless in the church in Scotland. We're so afraid. We, we run, we hide, we, 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 we compromise. Or we become legalists, and which is a different, to me, that's just a different kind of compromise. But just to stand before people and in, with spiritual truth, and in a spiritual manner with the whole armor of God to speak for and of Jesus Christ. And then the last thing I want to say is simply this. What do you think of Jesus? It's an honest question. What do you really think of Jesus Christ? Does Jesus Christ have the right and the authority to ask you to do anything? I know some people who like the idea of being Christians. They like the worship. They like coming to church. They like the idea of being religious. They like the idea of going to heaven. They like the idea of the community of the church. 
They like the idea of the Bible. They maybe don't read it all that much. But they like all these things. And then Jesus comes and says, yes, but that relationship you're in is wrong. What you're doing there is wrong. And it's almost as though they go, I'm sorry, but it's my life. What right do you have? Now, I don't believe churches have rights to tell people and to order people how they live their lives. But I absolutely believe that Jesus Christ does. And when you become a Christian, you are accepting that he is Lord. What right does Jesus have? He just simply says, I'm Jesus. Of course he has the right. Why then do we ignore him? What did Jesus say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He gives us that horrendous picture on the day of judgment when people will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? We healed the sick. We proclaimed the gospel. We, you know, fed the poor. And we did all these wonderful things. And Jesus says, I'm sorry. Go away from me. I never knew you. I didn't know you. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say. Do you know this people would rather retreat into religion and legalism than, than bow before Jesus as Lord. People would rather retreat into their own feelings and emotionalism than bow before Jesus as Lord. The very thing that you think, well, I'm not going to push it on that one because, you know, that's too difficult. I'll, I'll serve Jesus and everything else is the thing that Jesus says, sorry. I'm Lord. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? By instinct, by politics, by culture, I'm a, in many ways a libertarian, an anti-authoritarian. When someone says to me, stand up and clap, I sit down and fold my arms. When someone says, sit down and fold your arms, I'll stand up and clap. It's childish, I know, but that's the way it is. When government tells you, do this, do this, I'm almost wanting to do the opposite. There's an anti-authoritarianism. That's actually part of our culture as well. But, you know, I'm really, I'm glad I've got that. And in myself, I I personally, maybe this is wrong, I have this view, I'm not going to bow to anyone except Jesus Christ. But I have to bow to Jesus Christ. And hiding behind a religion and refusing to, to practically follow Jesus That's not the way to go. So come back to this. You profess to be a Christian. What do you really think of Jesus? Does he have authority in your life? Or is he just the advisor on the side that lets you determine how everything will go? Do you not understand that Christ loves you with a depth that you will never ever grasp and it's precisely because he loves you that you are to call him Lord and you are to follow him. That's the authority. It's a wonderful freeing authority. It's a liberating authority. I hope collectively as a church we will have it. I hope that we will proclaim it. I hope that individually and in our families we will acknowledge that. But don't muck around with Jesus. Don't play at religion. Don't use words that you don't mean. Call him Lord.
But as the old cliche goes, and it's still true, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Don't play at religion. Don't be lukewarm, hot or cold, but not lukewarm. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.